Well, please turn with me again back to the book of Acts chapter 10. Book of Acts chapter 10. As you are turning there, I want to show you a few slides here, a few things just sort of orient yourself with with where we are. So, if you remember, at the end of chapter 9, Peter was at a place called Joppa, which is a little over 30 miles south of another place called Caesarea. So, I know this is a little hard to see probably from where you are, but you've got here on the right, that's Caesarea as it is today. Some of you have been there. I'll show you a picture from our own Tyler Williams in a moment who took a picture there a couple years ago. But Caesarea is right there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If you're curious, just to give you just some facts, just to hold this in your mind, this is where Pontius Pilate lived while he was governor. So he moved, he would come to Jerusalem just for the major feasts three times a year because there could be an uprising and he was ready to crucify anybody who did that. But he spent most of his year here at Caesarea. Herod built this wonderful uh, port that he actually learned how to somehow get concrete to harden underwater in sea, in seawater, salt water. And they had this thing that goes about, you, you can see the reconstruction on the left here up at the top. He had this giant port area, and you can still see the remains today that went about, I think it's 200 yards in a circle out into the sea. So it's a pretty incredible place. This is where our main character today is living at the time. Our, our main character today is Cornelius. If you look at the next slide here, this is a picture Tyler Williams took in his trip there uh, from a couple years ago. Those are some original columns from, a, from an existing structure at, in Caesarea. Tyler actually has a whole bunch of pictures that I'll show you more in a future Sunday uh, of this area. And if we move to the next picture here, finally, uh, there, this is my kind of map, right? This is it. If, if, you, if you don't know how to navigate a map, I hope you can hang with this map here. So you can see the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee at the top, Mediterranean Sea as always there on the left. And if you look here, Joppa is where Peter is with this guy, Simon the Tanner, working with animal skins. It was, very, it was a very um, horrible stench that came from this, so they worked near the sea so that the, the sea air would blow through the house and prevent the neighborhood from not liking them very much for being tanners. So Simon was there in Joppa. A little over 30 miles north is Caesarea, and we'll, we'll just leave that map up there for a little bit just to keep uh, your orientation. Uh, that's where, again, up north at Caesarea is where Cornelius lives. Let's, let's meet Cornelius. Look at, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10 of Acts. In fact, well, let me start at the end of 9 just to see, see Joppa mentioned. Look at verse 42 of chapter 9. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, let me just say a few quick words here. I don't know about you, when you hear Roman military, your mind may just go blank. So just stick with me for a brief moment. The Roman army, which became, you know, quite an important part of history, Roman army at the time of Jesus had somewhere around 25 legions of troops. Now, a legion at best was 6,000 troops. It was usually less than 6,000, but ideally, a legion was 6,000 troops, and there were about 25 legions at the time of Jesus, maybe a little bit more by the time of Christ. Out of those 6,000 troops, you had um, a tenth of that was called a cohort. So, you got that legion, 6,000. A cohort is about 600. At best, usually it was less than 600, but ideally, 600 troops was a cohort, one-tenth of a legion. And then, a cohort of 600 was made up of six smaller groups 
called centuries, where we get our English word century, 100 years. Well, a century of troops was 100 troops, ideally. Usually it was 80, so they weren't always living up to their name, century, but they were supposed to have about 100 at an ideal uh, amount, and the leader of a century was a centurion. Has everybody got that? You hear a lot about centurions in the New Testament, we don't often stop to think what that actually means. So, one more time, 25 legions of 6,000 troops at most, each legion made up of, a, of 10 cohorts of about 600 troops, each cohort made up of six centuries, I think I'm saying this right, <laughs> and the centuries were about 100 men ideally, and the leader of the centuries was a centurion. So, what do we know about centurions? They were almost always in their 30s. Uh, To be a military man in Rome, you pretty much signed up for 20 years, and half of them died before the end of their 20 years in service to the Roman military. So, you had a 20-year stint from about 17 to 37, and if you were a really good soldier, you had to be able to read. You had to be uh, strong, oftentimes tall and strong. You had to be very competent in battle, and eventually you might become a a centurion leading a group of about 80 to 100 troops. So, Cornelius would have been a responsible individual. He would have been hardworking. He would have been literate. He would have been a number of things, kind of an ideal fighting soldier leading those troops. But there's more going on than just a Roman soldier. He was also a religious man. Look at verse 2. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, do you see that phrase, he feared God? This is, this is a nearly technical term in this time for a God-fearer. Maybe you all heard about God. So, God-fearer means a Gentile who is, if it's a man, a, a Gentile who has not yet become a full convert to Judaism, but has a high reverence for the God of Israel. You get that? This would mean he's uncircumcised. He has not taken that initiation of of circumcision. He does not keep probably the festivals. In fact, he wouldn't be able to keep fully all the festivals of Israel. Um, But he loved the idea of one God, one creator God, which was radical in Rome. You know, Rome, you worship all kinds of gods. He worshiped the one God of Israel. He prayed regularly to God. This is amazing. I'm going to argue in a moment that he is not a Christian yet, but he prayed regularly to God. I allow a non-Christian who prays, it seems like, daily at, the, at you know, 3 p.m., he's praying regularly, it sounds like, like a Jew would do. Let that be, a, you know, an encouragement to us as believers to pray more often, even with set times uh, in, in our day. He gave alms generously and prayed continually to God. So, I'm going I'm to use this outline. I, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm borrowing this outline from Kevin DeYoung because I can't I couldn't improve on it. So, this is from Kevin DeYoung, but it was very helpful, and I I, I found his sermon very helpful on this passage. He says, Cornelius was three things, and this will be the outline for the rest of the sermon. Cornelius, number one, what he was, number two, what he was not, and number three, what he became. What he was, what he was not, and what he became. So, we've already begun to describe him. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile God-fearer. He's not a convert to Judaism, but he's close to converting. He's on the edge, but he's not a Jew, and he is well-respected by the Jewish nation. Look at verse 22. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. And he was directed by an angel to send for Peter to come to his house. So, what was Cornelius? religiously speaking. Well, 
I want to try to give you some categories here to think about, and we need to be very careful with these categories, because we can go wrong in one of two ways. So he was outwardly, outwardly moral, outwardly decent, devout, even generous, and prayed regularly to God. Outwardly, he looked like a great guy. And in, in many respects, he would have been a, a very nice person. But inwardly, he was not a believer yet. He was still hostile to God at heart, okay? Still hostile to God at heart, but yet on his way to coming to know God. So here are the, here, here are the categories I, I want to try to clarify in our minds. Let me give a conservative possible error and a liberal possible error with this story. Let me start with a conservative error, at least what could be an error. Now, I am happy to affirm this doctrine because it's in Scripture. It sounds like a negative doctrine, but it's really important in the Bible. It's a doctrine that's been historically referred to as total depravity. Now, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. God in His common grace, oftentimes through our conscience, keeps us from being, even as non-Christians, as outwardly evil as we could be, okay? You can all think back on your pre-conversion life and think, I could have actually done worse even than I did, uh, but God's restraining grace uh, kept me from that. So the doctrine of total depravity comes from the doctrine of original sin, which is that we are all born. No exceptions to this except Jesus, which is why He was born of a virgin. He did not have this corruption of original sin. But we are all born fallen in Adam, which means we are radically corrupted and we are totally depraved. What that means is there is no part of us that sin has not infected and corrupted from our physical birth. We are all born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are all born not seeking the Lord from a true heart. We're all born with a heart of stone rather than a heart that's malleable and fleshly and alive to God. That's how we are born. But here is the caricature that could come. If we believe in total depravity, which you should believe, we should not distort the doctrine of, of total depravity. Total depravity is referring to the inward state of all of us upon birth spiritually. Inwardly, we are dead in sin. Inwardly, we are hostile to God. Romans 8 says we cannot submit to God's law, like Greg was describing, from the heart without the new birth. And so, inwardly, we are all totally depraved from birth. Genesis 6, before the flood, says, this is as clear as you can say total depravity. God saw mankind, and He saw that all the inclinations of the thoughts of every heart we're only evil all the time. Now, if that's not total, <laughs> I don't know. Who was evil? Everybody. How evil? Totally. When? All the time. That's total depravity, Genesis 6, 5, if you want a verse for it. God looked at the man and saw every thought of every heart was only evil all the time. So, our inward corruption is total. It is complete. We are incapable, left to ourselves, of loving the Lord God until He begins to work in our heart and to open our eyes. That, that's the doctrine. But how can it be caricatured? We can sometimes begin to think that therefore, and I love growing up in a Christian bubble in many ways, that's wonderful, but let's just talk about possible Christian bubble issues here. Work, I work at a Christian school, some of you do. I love Christian education, I'm all for it, but here, here's one thing to watch out for. We can grow up in a Christian bubble, and we can start to think that everybody 
who does not know Jesus is just outwardly, obviously, deeply corrupt, hates everything about the uh, God in the Bible, right, as soon as spit at you is talk about Jesus. You know, they're just ready to, you know, just, just this kind of like caricatured picture of the outward life of unbelievers. Let me tell you, are some believers like that outwardly? Yes. Are some, are some Christians outwardly hypocritical? Yes. But inwardly, there can be depravity and a dead heart to God, while outwardly, there is high moral conduct. Now, do you see how important this is? Let me give you an illustration. So, I graduated from my Christian school that I really like, Westminster, and I graduated in 2005. Some of the girls in my class went to UGA, and they roomed uh, at one of the dorms on, I guess, Baxter Street. Some of you have probably been there in some of those dorms. And um, they had a suite, so they had, you know, room on both sides of, sides of a shared bathroom, and there was, I think three of them knew each other, and there was a girl they did not know who got put in their suite, and she was a Hindu girl. Uh, I don't even think she originally was born in the United States. She had moved here, and these girls got to know this other girl really well. I don't even remember her name. I, I never met her personally. But these girls talked to several of us about meeting her. So, Christian school, UGA, that's a big transition. And now you've got a Hindu girl in your suite who you're talking to multiple times every day. You're having lunch with her, you're studying with her, maybe they even had classes with her, I don't know all the details, but eventually here's what they told several of us from our class. They said, I don't know what to do with this because this girl is the sweetest, kindest person, like one of the sweetest people we know. And she's thoughtful, and she's non-judgmental, and she's gracious, and she listens, and she helps us, and she, like, she's great. And they were starting to doubt what the Bible teaches about the lostness of people, because you see what had happened? The doctrine of total depravity, which is true, had become caricatured, and the thought was, if you meet an unbeliever, they're going to be outwardly, obviously hostile to you. And is that true? No, that's, not, that's true of some, but that is not true of all. You may meet some, and you may have relatives and friends who are outwardly some of the nicest people that you know. You may have neighbors who are just incredibly nice to you. They're generous to you. They are not believers in Jesus. They may even be devout Muslims or Hindus or whatever. It may be Buddhists. But we need to know that outward morality can be present while inwardly someone's heart is dead to the Lord Jesus. Those two things can coexist in one person. So that's the conservative temptation is to caricature total depravity. Everybody follow that? Now here's the liberal temptation, which is far more dangerous, I think. The liberal temptation is to say, well, Cornelius is saved. And, and here's a verse that has been used by an author like Clark Pinnock, who is as liberal as you can get and still claim to be a pastor, Clark Pinnock, I, whatever he says, the opposite is probably correct. He is out there. So, Clark Pinnock has used this verse on this topic. Are you ready? So, so look at verses 34 and 35. So, Peter opened his mouth and said, talking to Cornelius and his family, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him God, and does what is right is acceptable to him. And Clark Pinnock says, Cornelius was saved before he knew the name of Jesus. He was saved, how? He feared God, and he did good deeds. 
I mean, that's what we're told. He feared God. We're not told all that. We're told that he feared God, and we're told that he gave alms to the poor. In verse 2, he feared God, he gave alms. Here it says, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. And Clark Pinnock says, this is crystal clear evidence. You don't need to hear the gospel of Jesus in order to be saved. All you need to do is respond to whatever knowledge you have with prayers to a God and have a reverence for a God and do works of charity and kindness, and God will accept you. He will save you, no questions asked. Now, here's a principle of biblical interpretation. It is beyond dangerous to take a less clear verse and use it to blot out a clearer verse on the same subject. Does that make sense? So, if you have a verse that's like, okay, I'm going to tell you, there's, there's more than, there's many ways to interpret verse 35 that don't mean what Clark Pinnock said. There's different ways to interpret it. But you don't take a verse that's in its context, a little bit murky at first, and use that to blot out crystal clear texts that speak otherwise. So, when we interpret the Bible, if there's a verse like this that when you first read it is a little bit confusing, you don't jump to the most extreme position, right? You think today, with controversial issues, people will often try to find a, a seemingly unclear verse and make that the standard and blot out all the clear verses on something controversial. We can't do that. We got to let the clear text help us with the less clear text. So, so what are we to think here about this? What are we to think here about this uh, passage? Um, let, let me. Okay, we 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 uh, oftentimes I quote C.S. Lewis positively. We heard a really good quote from Lewis during Sunday school from from Fred, uh, which is really helpful from the weight of glory. I'm now going to quote Lewis negatively. Okay, so I like C.S. Lewis generally speaking, but you need to know about some glaring theological errors even in Lewis. Uh, and let me just read one quote from him on this topic that if you haven't heard it before, you're going to go, really? This is directly from Lewis. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and have been able to believe in Him? So, new life is confined only to those who've heard of Jesus and believed in Him? But the truth is, God has not told us what His arrangements are about, the other, about other people are. We do not know that no man can be saved except through Christ. That's Lewis. We do not know for sure that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know Him can be saved through Him. So, uh, this, is, this is the view that Lewis takes here. Uh, and it'll surprise you. Even Billy Graham, at a point, took a very similar position, which is kind of like rocks you back on your heels. But th- the idea here is it's a kind of inclusivism. The idea is this. Someone may not hear the gospel, and, but they, they see nature and they know something about the divine, and they have a sincere faith in God, whatever that God may be. And they are praying, and they're generous, and they're kind, and they're good people. And the argument is, perhaps they are saved by Jesus without ever having heard of Jesus, a kind of inclusive belief that certainly Clark Pinnock holds and that some other uh, well-known Bible teachers have held. Now, I'm going to argue that I do not think that that is true. I believe that in this day and age, in the era in which we live, the New Covenant era, you must have conscious faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to be saved from sin before God. Let me footnote. I am not addressing right now children who die in infancy who cannot understand anything, and I'm not addressing people with severe mental handicaps who have no cognizant abilities. That's for a whole other discussion. Okay, I'm not, everybody got that? That's a, that's a side thing that's very important. I'm not addressing those issues. I'm talking about people who have a mind that, that, that functions essentially normally, and they have, they have not 
uh, heard of Jesus, what, what about that category of people, and, and what do we do with this passage? Well, I, I have used this illustration in the past, so some of you, bear with me. I, I, I don't have a different one. So, do you remember this illustration? This is my driver's license. So, this right here looks like a normal driver's license, but it is actually made of paper, okay? This was my uh, temporary license that I got for like a month when I got my license removed, re renewed, uh, b not removed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask any legal questions about this right here. I can drive, I can drive. So, um, this is the temporary license that I got that lasted for, I don't know, a month or two as a temporary fill-in license. Now, while before this expired, I had about a month or so to use this, and if I were to get pulled over by the police, we won't say whether that happened, if I were to get pulled over, I would show my, the police officer this right here, and they would credit this as being a real driver's license, even though it's made of paper. And it's not a real driver's license. It's a temporary one printed on paper. But they would count it as real because this one had not arrived yet. When this one, the plastic, this is, this is real, okay, this is real. When the, when the plastic driver's license arrived in the mail, what happens to this one? This is no longer valid. So if I got pulled over today and I gave my paper license, I would be in trouble because I don't have a license. This is not a license. I have to have this one to present. Now, if you remember how this illustration goes, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was like, this was like this paper license. It was not a real way. The, the, the animal sacrifice did not actually atone for sin, but it was credited as atoning for sin because the real sacrifice was on the way. And this sacrificial system was pointing forward to the real thing, okay? So, Jesus is coming. He's going to be the true sacrifice who actually atones for sin. Why kill these animals for hundreds of years? Those are all pointing forward to the true Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. God counted those animal sacrifices as being real, not because they were, but because they were pointing towards Jesus. Everybody follow that. Now, people like Clark Pinnock and others have argued, Job never heard the name Jesus and he was saved. David never heard the name Jesus, he was saved, and on and on. So you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Job didn't, David didn't. Abraham didn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth. He was saved. And here's, here's the argument I want to make that's very important. In the Old Covenant era, right, the sacrificial system, what you needed was special revelation that God was sending the serpent crusher, that it was going to do business with sin and save us, the son of David. You had to have knowledge of that son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David. You had to have some knowledge of that and put your faith in that in order to be saved, okay? But you didn't have to know the name Jesus because it was, He wasn't there yet. But when Jesus came and He was sacrificed, upon His resurrection and ascension, at that moment a transition took place in redemptive history. Now the sacrificial system will not do you any good. If you go now and you make a temple and you sacrifice animals in the temple and you do it in the name of the God of Israel, is that going to save you? No, because when the real thing arrives, the old thing is outdated. You get that? So, when Jesus comes, it is now true that all God's saving purposes are focused on the name of Jesus today. You cannot be saved apart from conscious faith in Jesus. And let me give you some arguments for this. Let me give you four passages. Greg read part of one just a minute ago. Look at chapter 11, 
when the same story about Cornelius is told a second time, look at chapter 11. The angel told Cornelius, verse 14, to go get Peter, 11:14. Peter will declare to you a message by which you, Cornelius, will be saved. Is that not crystal clear? Was Cornelius saved before he heard about Jesus? No. Was he outwardly moral? Yes. Was he outwardly religious? Yes. Was his heart inwardly dead to God like every unbeliever? Yes. It wasn't until he heard the good news of Jesus of Nazareth and put his faith in Jesus that he and his household would be saved. I think that's crystal. I could rest my case on 11.14, but I'm going to keep going. Look at 11.18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted two things, repentance that leads to life. What's the opposite of life? So Cornelius was dead in his sin before this moment, and he was unrepentant. He, he, he did not have genuine repentance towards God through Christ, and he was not alive. He was dead in sin. Uh, flip with me back to Acts 2 real quick. Acts chapter 2. An important verse here. Look at 2 verse 5. As Peter gets up to preach at Pentecost, verse 5 now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, what kind of men? Devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, that's the same word used to describe Cornelius, devout. Intense about religion, devout, serious about religion. Look down at verse 38. Peter says to those devout people, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Being devout, even a devout Jew, apart from knowing Christ savingly, you are not yet forgiven. You are not yet saved. And then turn back to chapter 10, and look at verse 43. Verse 43. This is an important verse. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I've got to tell another story here. Now, this is old news these days, okay? No one takes this seriously today, but they, they used to. When, when I graduated high school, same year, this book came out by Rob Bell called Velvet Elvis Repainting the Christian Faith. He certainly was repainting something. Okay, so in this book, I, I, I took a Bible class in college, and this was one of our books in my class. And we were told to read it, and the teacher kept defending this book. I was arguing against it. My teacher was defending it. Let me just read you one section that I had to do a report on uh, this in class. That was an interesting day. This is what Rob Bell wrote. And this, this is a book that was like, if you don't know, in 2005 to 2009, virtually every youth group around had this guy's Numa series, his DVD series. Uh, I was at a youth conference with 375 kids, and they showed a Rob Bell video for 15 minutes on the screen. I've been, in, I've been all over the place. People loved Rob Bell at this point. So, here's something he said in the book. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for everybody. Now, even that needs to be, you got to be careful what you mean by that, Rob Bell. Then he says, so this reality, this forgiveness, this reconciliation is true for everybody. He died for everybody, so everybody is forgiven. He says, this reality of forgiveness is not something we make true about ourselves by doing something. It's already true of everybody. And then he says, this reality extends beyond this life. 
Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of people loves whom Jesus died for. Hell is full of forgiven people God loves whom Jesus died for. I can remember sitting in this critical issues on theology class, about to scream. I mean, I had to, I mean, you think I'm bad now. 20-year-old me was just like about to tear the walls down and cloud. So I'm sitting in class. I'm like, that is nonsense. Like I just want to you know, do that. So I was doing a report on this chapter. I did a report on this chapter. And I remember to this day sitting next to some of these, you know, some of these people, brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I believe. But on this topic, my, my fellow classmates thought he was correct. That that Jesus died for everybody, so everybody's already forgiven. It's already, it's already true. Like we're, we, we can choose whether or not to accept it, but we're already forgiven. And I went to this verse in Acts 10, however many years ago, verse 43. This has got to be said crystal clear. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. I just, this is crystal clear, super important. Someone who has not yet put faith in Jesus, is not forgiven before God. I can't, that's just so basic, but that was debated in my theology class with future pastors in the room, right? So, um, if you have not yet believed in Jesus and repented of sin, you right now stand as I used to stand, under condemnation because of my sin and your sin. And you need, just like I need, a Savior His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and if you turn to Him, He will save you. And forgiveness of sins doesn't come through trying your hardest. It comes through faith in His name. We must believe in the name of Jesus. As a a very important application point, this is why missions matters. I won't take us all there, but just listen to the logic of Romans 10. Think about the Jew and Gentile. Just listen to this. Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, right? Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? So you follow in the logic? Anyone who calls on Jesus will be saved as Lord. They can't call on Him if they haven't first believed in Him. You can't call on something you don't believe in. So, before you can call to be saved, you've got to believe in Him. And how are they to believe in Him if they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent missions? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, do you see the logic? You cannot be saved unless you call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. You confess Him with your mouth. You believe in your heart. You are converted. Until that happens, you're not saved. You can't call on Him if you haven't believed in Him. And you can't believe in Him unless you have been told about Him. And you can't have been told about Him unless someone has preached Him. And no one preaches unless they are sent. And that's why Paul says, that's why Paul says, I'm giving my whole life to go all around the Roman Empire, planting churches in every major city. Because if we, this side of heaven, Oh, the gospel to everyone this side of hell. Uh, That's a quote from another pastor. We have an obligation to, as Paul said, to Greek, to barbarian, to Scythian, to slave, to free, to everyone. We have an obligation. We owe it to them. God has rescued us from our sin. We owe this to other people. This is an obligation. This is a debt. Paul says, I'm indebted by this good news to give it to other people. 
If someone hears the gospel from our lips and sees a consistent life, not a perfect life, but a consistent life to back up our message, and they still reject it, we weep and we pray over them. But ultimately, that is not on us. But what is on us is what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel said, if a watchman stands on the wall and a foreign army is approaching to attack the city and the watchman either falls asleep or sees the army and doesn't say anything to alert anyone about it, the blood of the city is on the watchman's hands. We have the good news and we should be joyfully, graciously motivated to give this to those who need it so that they themselves can hear the gospel and put conscious faith in the Lord Jesus Himself. So back in Acts 10, if you're wondering what I think the controversial verse means, the Lord, verse 35, in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Okay, just stick with me for this. So, acceptable could mean saved, justified. If that's what acceptable means, which I doubt, if that's what acceptable means, then fearing God and doing what is right means hearing the gospel and believing. That's what it would have to mean. But I don't think that's probably what it means. Probably what this is referring to goes back to verses 31 and 32. Verse 31, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. Now, do you see it? Cornelius has been praying and giving alms. God has heard his prayers, remembered his acts, and therefore is answering the prayer by sending a missionary. This is not a guarantee that anyone who ever looks up to heaven and asks for, you know, I'm not guaranteeing that, but what what I'm saying here is Cornelius' life was he was desperate to know more of God, and he was praying to know more about God, and the Lord honored those prayers, even though he was not yet a believer. The Lord honored those prayers and his actions by sending Peter Therefore, the Lord sent Peter to him, and when Peter preached the good news, Cornelius then responded by God's grace through faith in Christ. And just to kind of move towards our time of communion here, so we've looked, number one, what he was. He was outwardly moral but not saved. Number two, what he was not. He was not yet saved. Number three, what he became. So look look with me just real quick, Peter's sermon here, verses 36 to 43. Peter describes three items. Number one, he describes Jesus' life and ministry. Two, Jesus' death and resurrection. And finally, Jesus as the final judge. So, verse 36. This is what Peter, Peter says. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Just pause there. Why add he ate and drank with us? This is not a spiritual truth that He rose spiritually from the dead. This is not a metaphor. It's poetry. You know, Jesus rose from the dead in our hearts. No, no, no. We ate fish with Jesus. We had breakfast with fish. We ate fish in the upper room with Jesus. There was a lot of fish eating going on in the resurrection. Jesus was eating meals regularly, multiple times, with the disciples to say, I'm not a spirit. I'm flesh and bones. This is a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. I mean, 
all of Christianity rests on this central miracle, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is still dead in a grave in Palestine, Christianity is a lie and we are fools to believe it. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. If Christ has not been raised, we're of all people most to be pitied. We're pathetic if, we, if we're believing a lie. But if Jesus has been raised, which He has been, then everything we do in life counts forever. Our life has eternal significance, eternal value, eternal weight. Everything we do matters because it's tied to a never-ending reality of the resurrection of the dead. And then he finishes, verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, Jesus, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And then as soon as this happens, what occurs? The Spirit falls, Cornelius is converted, and this time he speaks in tongues, showing that the gospel has reached the Gentiles. They're all baptized, he and his household. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will get into what this means for redemptive history, which is chapter 11, when they tell the story again from a slightly different angle. So, as we approach the Lord's table here, a sincere religious lost man became a repentant, believing, saved man, DeYoung says. As we approach the Lord's table, let's think about this. Jesus was a real, literal, historical person. I mean, even secular historians, uh, the vast, overwhelming majority today say it's undeniable that Jesus was really existed and was crucified. Undeniable. Jesus really lived. He really died at atoning death. If we will turn and accept Him, we will be forgiven forever, righteous in Christ. And this meal, this, this table, the Lord's table, is meant to remind us of this. So, no matter our background no matter our ethnicity, Jew or Gentile or anything else, we are one in Christ, and that is represented by sharing the one bread and the one cup in common. The idea is that we're sharing this meal together as a family. Those of us who've turned from sin and trusted in Christ, we are all invited to come forward, repenting of sin, taking the elements, returning to our seat, and enjoying those, representing our unity in Christ and Christ's love for us, His body given for us and His blood shed for us. Every time we do communion, I, I must say this, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, we would ask you now to refrain from coming forward. You need not these elements, but what these elements represent, which is Christ's death on your behalf. You need to turn and trust in this Christ, and then come talk to us if you've done that. The Lord would welcome you with open arms, even at this very moment, if you do not know Him. So, let's bow our heads. After I pray, you can come forward uh, when you desire. Heavenly Father, uh, thank You for this story of Cornelius. Help us not to have a distorted picture of total depravity. Uh, many of our non-Christian family members and friends are very outwardly wonderful and wonderful people to be around, even if they do not yet know the Lord Jesus. But that does not neglect the truth that apart from conscious faith in Jesus of Nazareth, we are still left dead in our sins and under condemnation for the sins that we have committed, whether against Your Word or, if we haven't heard Your Word, against the conscience that You have given us. And God, we desperately need to get this good news to those who have not heard. We thank You for those who have gone out from our church to spread Your gospel in other parts of the world. 
And we pray even for those locally that we would be burdened by the lost people around us, that we would love them well and invite them to uh, the Lord Jesus for salvation. And please be with us now uh, as we together partake of uh, the Lord's table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.